Welcome to the Sunday Morning Linux Review, episode 300. Linux is obsolete. This is Tom Lawrence. Mary Tomich. Phil Parada. Jay LaCroix. All right. And uh, in th- on this day in history, because we were trying to come up with a show title, <laughs> we thought this one was fun. Uh, on this day in history, the thread ended de- uh, the debate of whether or not Linux is obsolete, and that was on uh, February 10th, 1992. Yeah, how many years ago did we determine that? Yeah. 92, 02, 12, and then 7, so that's 27? Yeah, we had to close. 27 years ago? We had to close the thread. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they found out it wasn't the case. Yeah, it turns out it's not obsolete. Uh, That was determined. That's why they had to close the thread back in 1992. I'll leave a link to the article if you want to read about it, but uh, it was back in the news group days for those of you old enough like myself to participate in uh, the NNTP servers. (laughs) And it was uh, Alt OS Minix. So if you remember Minix and where the, the famous uh, Linus, uh, where he'd put the, I've got this little hobby I'm working on. You know, that's that same thread where mm-hmm. all that started. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> yeah. This little hobby turned into a, you know, a podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. So we have a special guest today, and so we're going to start with her for the catch-up. How's it going, Mary? Well, for the last two months. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey, it's fun to be back. Um, yeah, stop by. Um well, you know, you know, something I discovered. I've been I've been running KDE Neon for oh my gosh, a couple years now, and uh, there's some wacky little bug in. Um, I think it's the it's the PDF viewer. I believe it's called. Um, I want to say it's Ocular. I think. And um, when I try to print from it, it it defaults to A4. And um, there is a bug. Apparently, there's hmm. some kind of bug. I, I, if I want to fix it, I have to go into some file someplace in the nether regions of uh, my system and uh, make some changes there, which I haven't. I usually just hit my printer button a few times, and then it just <laughs> pulls the paper that I've got in my tray. But you know, I've been dealing, kind of working on that. It's not a weird issue. It is kind of weird, but there is. Um, I did look it up. There is there is something um, going on with it. So been doing that. You sure it's not a country code problem? No, I looked into that. Okay. I checked. Yep. No, but that that's a very logical idea, and um, I did check that because I, f- I could solve it easy. That's that's my preference. So, hmm. um, yeah, and then just started a new little business, got legal with the state. So Ooh. That's a hassle. Yeah, more Getting than it legal. should be. Being legal. <laughs> just, well, you just so. operate, you know, a complete cash society in a bizarre market. Yeah. It's just, how open source works, man, or just the, the, yeah. the old book, what is it, the uh, Cathedral in the Bazaar. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. So, so yeah, so then, you know, a little travel, and that's about it for me. Okay. Phil. I picked up a contracting job. Granted, it's my old job, but now I'm getting paid... Uh, more? More to upgrade all of my old code from uh, years and years ago. And that's fun, seeing, <laughs> seeing old, crufty code that you left still oh. in its exact same state. Um, so expect more Ansible videos coming possibly a video on terraform um long sleepless nights uh the past couple weeks wow sound busy oh yeah, yeah. well and kind of related yeah, but to you're getting is, paid for it yeah so that but i also like to sleep so okay. there is that <laughs> now if i could find a business that will pay me to sleep that would be fantastic sleep be a guinea pig there you go mm-hmm yeah, that's uh, uh, our listener feedback. I don't know if it was sent to just me or did you see it as well. We'll cover it. Uh, someone thanked us for the Ansible videos. They helped them get started on there. So Very cool. There's some comments on that. So people ask, and they do want to know when we're going to do more. <laughs> well, 
it, it'll happen sooner rather than later. I when, promise you that. When the contract's over and you – here's how you update your old Ansible code. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always changing something. What's new, Jay? All right. So as of last Wednesday on my YouTube channel, uh, LearnLinux.tv, I started a Python series. Uh, so I'm teaching people Python now. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I'm going to have three. to tune in. Yeah, every every Wednesday there's going to be uh, two or three videos. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, right now we're just at the very foundational basics. But I'm going to keep variables. building. Yeah, basically building everyone up uh, from the basic bottom level understanding mm-hmm. and just kind of seeing how far I go. It might be one of the longest ones I've ever done because it kind of seems like it's taken me a long time to get through it because there's just so much to cover. There's so many, you know, details. Kind of angles you want to make sure yeah, that new th- people... At some point, I want to get into, like, Linux administration mm-hmm. through Python, which is the goal. So that way you can write scripts that can do system-level tasks. But I have to get through, here's how you do variables, here's how you do this, before I can even get to that point. So right now, it's, you know, it's it's kind of just bare bones, but I'm hoping it's going to be um, successful. It's um, my first programming series ever, so... I'm kind of just trying to gauge if there's interest in it, if this is what the um, people on my, my viewers want to see or or not. But it's a cool experiment. It's fun. Um, it's my favorite programming language. I've been using it for I don't know how many years now. I don't know why I just gravitated towards Python. Uh, I think it was a company I worked for at the time where they were doing all their system admin tasks through Python. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. So now it's kind of come full circle. I feel like I, I know enough to enough to teach other people as well. And uh, that's happening. And um, although it's just a kind of like a trial, I have my first sponsor. Linode is I, is a sponsor on my channel now, uh, so we're we're just doing it for Excellent. one month just to see how it goes. See if there's a mutual benefit there, and I like them anyway. So I've had people that'll contact me, ask me to review products and things. I generally say no because if it's not something I use or care about, I'm not mm-hmm. gonna just do it just for the sake of the money. But Linode is something I use anyway, so mm-hmm. it's like I mean, you may as well be like. Um, a company like Fire uh, Mozilla with Firefox. I use Firefox every day. I mean, they could sponsor. I mean, they wouldn't. But I'm just saying, it, things I use mm-hmm. on a daily basis. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll let them sponsor me. So. Um, and Linode ha- always yeah. had nice swag. At uh, they sent me a T-shirt and um, some stickers, which are the same. It's the same T-shirt I got at PenguinCon last year. So now I have two because uh, right. they were they were there last year, uh, which which is interesting. And so I'm just kind of seeing how that goes. Outside of the YouTube channel, um, I'm doing a little experiment where I'm trying to app image all the things just to see how far I get. And I use sync thing on my laptop to sync my files from one computer to another. So I have like a bin directory in my home directory. I put my app images in there. And since it syncs to all my computers, the apps will sync to all my computers as well. So, for example, LibreOffice 6.2 came out, so I downloaded the app image for it. I put it in my bin folder. Now every computer has LibreOffice 6.2, regardless of whether Ubuntu ships it which they don't i think they will yeah i noticed that too. yeah they're still at six one i think so but now every computer has it i put caden live in there uh etcher game hub and a number of others so just kind of trying to experiment separating the user space apps from mm-hmm. the debian packages because in my opinion i just think user space apps just really shouldn't be um conflicting with system libraries i mean at the end of the day if you install the wrong program or the wrong update for that said program, you could work your entire system. I just think it makes more sense, even though it takes a slight bit more hard drive space, just completely separating that out. So, so far, so good. The mix of uh, app images that not all of them create desktop shortcuts. Some of them do, some of them don't. So 
it's there's just no consistency in updating his manual, so I have to go check for an update. I mean, there's ways around this without getting too technical. We did do a deep dive um, in a different episode. But basically, I'm just trying to see how far I get with this. I think it's it's cool, but my problem with this is that no developer seems to be all in on these universal packages, which is really weird to me because if I was a developer, I wouldn't want to compile my product five or six different times to just to target Linux. Like, here's a Mandriva RPM, and here's an OpenSUSE RPM, and this one's for Debian, and this one's for Ubuntu, and then all these different versions I'd have to maintain, whereas with the universal package, I could just do that the one time. I would think that developers would be all in, but it just doesn't seem to be the case. Like LibreOffice, that's for Linux, that's not their primary uh, distribution. If you go download it, you have to kind of search for the app image. It's, I mean, it, it's interesting to me, but... I think it's I'll turf just, and ego. You know, I mean, yeah. people, you have distros that people have really spent a lot of time on and effort and maybe, and okay, it's Debian based and they use the app system and they just don't want to reinvent the you wheel know, they don't or, wanna, or right, build yeah. chain and things like that. I think they don't like change. And I think that's <laughs> you know, what it is. That's, I just think yeah, it's a Tom, better I think way to go, but... Yeah, I think that's what it is. I mean, I've met some programmers, and they if their favorite tool becomes obsolete, they will fight to the death to keep it relevant to them. That must be why I still <laughs> install, install Synaptic. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I still install that as well. I, I, I mean, if I'm going to use graphical package mm-hmm. management, um, that's one thing. So another interesting thing I've, I've done recently is I decided to just give PC gaming another try. I, I mean, I'm mostly a console gamer, so... Um, 90% of the time is on gaming consoles, but I don't play very many PC games, but I just wanted to give it another shot. And um, it's, it's an excuse to buy something, and, and who doesn't need retail therapy every now and then? So, <laughs> they, All the time. Yeah. So I've been kind of biased against ATI most of my career, because when I first started back in the Windows 98 into XP days, before Linux even, um, first video card I ever bought was ATI, and it sucked. It was just horrible. I, I figured, you know, this is maybe a bad card. I'll, I'll buy another one, maybe try a different one years later. It sucked. And then I see ATI graphics on laptops, hated it. I switched to Linux, and then the <laughs> hardware driver support was horrible. And nowadays in the gaming communities for Linux gaming, everyone is saying, you got to try ATI again. You know, forget what happened before. They're fine. So I decided to go out of my comfort zone when I went for an upgrade and actually buy an ATI card. I bought an RX 580 just to see what the experience would be like. So, And it actually was not what I expected in a good way. I, I put the card in my machine. I started up, and normally what I do is I open the drivers, software and drivers or software and updates app, whatever it's called, where it, you have a selection of um, drivers you can select for different pieces of hardware, and it says um, you have no proprietary components in your system. I'm like, well, I just installed a video card, so what's going on here? <laughs> yeah. So then I, I'm like, okay, I'm going to open up a game and just see how bad it runs because I didn't install the ATI driver, and it runs at, runs at full speed. Full frames per second is, is really high, very, very efficient. I'm like, what's going on here? So I'm like, why is my system working without me installing anything? And I do some digging, and apparently, I'm not sure if it's built into the kernel, but it seems like it, or if it's some kind of driver package, open source driver package. The driver's built in. There's just nothing wow. nothing to do. As I understand it, that's only true with new cards. Maybe not with, I mean, if you buy an older system or, or you know, repurpose an older system, mm-hmm. it's not going to work like that. But with newer cards, I understand it does. 
So then that's awesome. I, I, my games work. I had to install no drivers, configure nothing, pop the card in, everything works like it's native. I get the kernel mode setting and TTYs and everything that NVIDIA doesn't seem to have. So then the next thing I look into is my monitor has FreeSync, which is a, um, it's a built-in thing in some monitors where it matches the refresh rate and the, and the graphics card to allow them to adjust the refresh rate to match so you get less tearing. And so I look into it, and it looks like it's not supported. So then I'm like, okay, well, what do I have to do to get this thing to work? And I'm thinking, okay, here's where the other shoe drops, and i got to find a proprietary driver and do some kernel surgery. And then I find the answer is, oh, it's built into Linux 5.0. Oh, so I update to kernel 5.0, and I get the free sync automatically. Apparently, there's going to be nothing to do there either. I could just run the kernel, and then I get the free sync. Slick, 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 I'll tell you. So I guess I take back all the criticisms I've put in the past <laughs> about it. I would always slam ATI cards and just, you know, just rant and they rave must have how heard horrible you. they are. Um, but you nowadays, but this is great. I'm blown away by this. You didn't like uh, fighting with the FG LRX driver. That's way what back it in was. I was looking for. The that's how oh, I got. Yes, that's I that's how I got driver. my Linux yes. start. Was um, I had an old ATI card. <laughs> I popped in an Ubuntu disk, and then the next thing I know, I'm at a, a shell, and it's it's yelling at me about my Radeon card. Yeah. I had that same problem at a previous company several years ago I used to work for. They, the laptops they gave out had ATI video cards built in. I had to load that driver on there, and I, it was still kind of crashing and just not very stable. Sounds and, right. Um, basically, I would had a docking station, I undock the laptop, and X decides to crash because it can't handle that. So I'm in a chat room, and they're like, you got to try ATI. I'm like, I'm on ATI right now. It sucks. <laughs> and then they're like, no, the newer cards, you got to try them. So I you know, decided to do it. And I guess after, I don't know at what point it started to be good, at what model number. I just know I have the RX 580, and that's one of them that is supported out of the box. So mm-hmm. I mean, if they keep on doing um, supporting open source drivers, I'm never going to go back to NVIDIA. Um, well, I mean, why would I Go back to NVIDIA if I have to load a proprietary driver and all these other things. Because it's fast. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But, you know, this is too, and it's the the great the games run really, really well. Now, granted, I'm not running anything extremely high-end here, and a lot of the games I'm running are probably a couple years old, but still uh, works really well. And then other than that, I'm experimenting with a couple solutions for graphical server management just to see which one I like better between landscape Cockpit, AWX, I'm, I'm trying those three currently. But have you tried Webmin? I have. Um, I just wanted to see a look on Phil's face. That <laughs> I am yes. frowning so hard right now at you, Tom. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, I, I actually used Webmin at the very beginning, <laughs> and not for very long. I just thought it was neat how I had a web interface for yeah, doing for different things. And I don't yeah. think I found it very useful as much as I found it amusing that something like that could even be done. It actually, they've and updated I, it a lot, so it's did. gotten better. I think Cockpit is a better Webmin than Webmin. It's essentially I'll the agree same with thing. That. Yeah, it does what Webmin does, but it does it more efficiently and it does it better. So between the three, I think I like Landscape the best. The downside is there's a cost, because it's canonical doesn't want to give everything away for free. They want some profit. So it has the most features, that, and the feature set matches what I am looking for, but it's really hard to set up. It's frustrating. I was able to get it going, but again, frustrating. Cockpit is way easier to get going, has fewer features. And AWX is the graphical version of 
Ansible, essentially. So if you wanted a graphical front end to uh, run a playbook on a machine, you would do that through AWX, which AWX is the open source upstream of Ansible Tower, which most people know it as Ansible Tower. Ansible Tower is a paid version of that. An entire Fresh Looks episode on all the different management tools. And if I find find (laughs) enough information on that uh, through this experiment, then... Maybe maybe there's enough to satisfy an entire episode. Maybe we could do that. I'll right. let you know how it goes. And I'm still kind of at the beginning stage of this. So maybe by the next time we get together, I'll have a chosen one <clears throat> that I like better. Yeah. So. Very cool. Uh, my time's been simple. Uh, I've, you know, a handful of more videos, but I covered the quick protocol, uh, which feels kind of tech news story, kind of related to HTTP3 and things like that, because the internet's a change in, and we're using some new protocols. So uh, that's some good, important stuff to talk about. The other thing I wanted to talk about was security. And so I did a couple of videos on that because the ultimate bad thing happened in my industry. Uh, one of, and apparently they're in the Midwest, but I don't know their name and it's not really relevant. Uh, another company, an IT services company that has about 80 businesses they service, their tool set got hacked. And that allowed the hackers to deploy to all 80 companies crypto locker. Wow. So the company they were paying to secure them became their vulnerability point because that company wasn't practicing good security. And this is a problem in general in IT that I don't know how to tackle because from a business owner standpoint, when you put yourself in their shoes, they choose an IT company because their marketing was good, their salesperson was good, but they really don't know because they don't understand themselves whether or not those companies are practicing good security hygiene. And if you spend any time in Reddit or sysadmin, you see people constantly that quit working at these MSPs because they're grindhouses for um, bad security, heavy sales. Let's see how much money we can squeeze out of these people on a recurring revenue basis. Mm. And just a complete disregard. One of them, one of the worst write-ups I've seen from a company was after a person left, he realized they never changed their password schema, which was using the company's name and then a few digits from their address of the street they were on as a schema for all their master admin passwords for everything. Just, yeah. So I've been thinking a lot about that kind of thing and if there's some type of industry thing we can do to help business owners and stuff like that. So I was spending a lot of time uh, consulting with them and you know, a lot of that fun stuff because security is so much fun and getting worse. <laughs> Boy, something like that's enough to put um, someone out of business. Yes. All I mean, it, that's critical. Uh, the company was, the, the in the end, what they are trying to do is find funding uh, to pay all the ransom. That was, so the, the inside people that were doing the write-ups on this um, and the security team, which involves uh, Huntress Labs talking about how the breach happened and stuff like that, they basically said that the only solution to this is to pay the CryptoLocker people. Um, and But at that point, once you've been CryptoLockered, if any of these companies have a compliance, uh, like you know HIPAA, Sarbanes, anything that they're <laughs> under, they're going to have to report all that, that their systems are compromised because we don't know what else they did. We know what they did with CryptoLocker, but once they've had an in, and it's full admin, they took over the tool that doesn't run an admin permission. It runs in Windows at system-level permission. That's how all these RMM tools were. They had full control over it, so they could put whatever they want, extract whatever they want. There's no way of knowing. So all these companies have been compromised now because of one IT company that had 80 businesses that they did this for. Terrifying. It's mm. Yeah, and wow. it's really 
it, it makes me think a lot because it's a scary industry we're in and the margins aren't that good and it becomes those things like you know we have a lot of risk even i have a lot of risk because we have a lot of businesses you're like wow all this risk and everything people beating us up on price but they don't realize what's at stake like your company's at stake because we watch companies go out of business when they lose data or get crypto lockered or have to deal with a uh, compliance thing you know a big big hospital we hear about it every day but there's all these smaller companies that you don't hear they're not big enough to make the news this isn't in the news anymore because all these are a bunch of small businesses, but they don't always survive because uh, they no. can't afford because the fine the fine doesn't scale. The fine is here you got to pay a hundred thousand dollars. Well, if you're the size of some mega company, you're like eh, whatever Equifax, we'll just write a check. I think that, <laughs> I think that news article could have been <clears throat> popular, but sometimes I'm afraid that there's a sense of uh, another hack in the industry. Like people see this so many times that they're kind of numb to these news articles. And I think that's not the reaction we need. We need Yeah, like, so definitely an issue there. So, yeah. yeah. But uh, other than that, just the usual fun. Oh, and there's also another video of uh, I got to interview one of the people that worked at Zabbix, and I threw that up on there um, And because he decided to create a whole new Zabbix series of videos uh, cool. so that are out there. So more and more Zabbix training. Um, I didn't realize how few people worked at Zabbix, but it's a really cool project. But uh, that's been it for me for the last few weeks. Now moving into listener feedback. I did not have that pulled up already. <laughs> So, so we're supposed to talk quietly amongst ourselves. Actually, yeah. while you pull that up, I want to make one quick comment to Jay about uh, uh, drivers and things. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, back in January, I needed to purchase. Uh, I wanted an inkjet, inkjet printer, mm-hmm. and I just wanted the printer. But unfortunately, most times these days, you, you end up with a scanner and all that other oh, crap. Yeah. So um, I got HP because I like HP printers, and I was so amazed in a positive way that I simply plugged that thing in. And um, I went yep. to my uh, went to my application. Not only did I not have to to you know you remember how you used to go in and try to identify because uh, um, I think HP had a pretty good setup where you could go in and you'd look for your printer and you'd go go through this little step to uh, so, or to integrate it with your system. Mm-hmm. But not now. I just went into my application that I wanted to print or the the, the document and I opened up the print thing and there it was. Yep. I did not have to do a darn thing. And the reason why that w- works is because the HP LIP driver package mm-hmm. is built into a large number of distributions. Now, if you were to install Arch Linux, you'd have to do that manually. It's not that hard. But no, Ubuntu, it's not. It's just a series of steps. Yeah, but, but still. Ubuntu builds it right in. They. It's just, last time I checked, I haven't used an HP printer in a long time, so I don't know if that's still the mm-hmm. case, but I know the last time I used it, that package is just built right into the yeah, distro it so um it's it's pretty cool for um people that need a printer so yeah. okay, it's kind of great yep. when it works better than on windows yeah that's, I, yeah that for sure i do like this email uh the way you title it so uh steve sent us and the title is root at smlr cat dot smlr underscore history uh, he wants to know how we got started so he said that might be a fun <laughs> thing uh, and tony's not here to really speak to it and because uh, Tony, Tony's the one who started all this. And Matt's in prison. No. <laughs> and one of the other founders is in prison. No. <laughs> so, no. <laughs> An unrelated charges, no. Um, yeah, unrelated I mean, to the Linux. <laughs> <laughs> Completely <laughs> off topic. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, it was way back in the day, but that might be an interesting uh, yeah. little Maybe topic. we'll put that, because that way if someone... Topic. Well, yeah, well, we can maybe do a fresh look of um, the history of the show, and we definitely need Tony here, because he's there. He's the mm-hmm. founder of the show, mm-hmm. and I don't even know all the history, because I've only been here a couple of years, and the show predates mm-hmm. me by quite a bit. Were yeah. you on the first episode, Mary? I, I started episode 13. Okay. 
So Mary's lucky thirteen. Lucky thirteen. Hmm. So I think it was thirteen. Something that like sounds that. like a fun um, episode that can be recorded uh, like over some beers or something somewhere else. So we'll do yeah. we'll do a, we'll go somewhere and record that one. Just set the mic down at the table. Buy Tony a beer. All right, man. Let's go. <laughs> time to get those stories out. Sounds like a good time. <laughs> okay. We got uh, uh, mail from Brian in Minneapolis. Uh, he thanked us for making our Ansible videos and putting them on YouTube. He says he's got a use for that kind of knowledge um, because he runs several bare metal and uh, VMs. So you're welcome, and there'll be more coming. Yeah. No, we're excited for that. And uh, the PC Freak sent us an email with a Bitwarden. And now Phil and uh, Jay are better at looking at this, but Mm -hmm. it's a way to use Bitwarden to check, uh, have I been pwned uh, with your passwords on there? I talked about this, I think, in the last episode we have of how easy it is to check, and there's a few bash scripts out there that allow you to easily check if your password's in the Have I Been Pwned list, um, and this is a way you can do it with uh, the Bitwarden Password Manager. And Jay's a recent adopter yeah. of Bitwarden, so we're going to hear... A, I use, uh, I've been using KeePass for a very long time, and it, it works fine. I've had a Bitwarden account for, I don't know how long now, quite a while. I barely use it. It's kind of like Google Plus. You know, you have an account, but you barely use it. But now that it's going away, you actually want to use it more. I'm not saying anything's <laughs> going away, but w- I've been using uh, Bitwarden more recently because of, um, you know, I just wanted to give it more of a chance. And it's been a long time, but it's come such a long way. And after it passed the audit, I had more confidence in it. And yeah. the interface is great. I'm not a fan of LastPass. Because I don't, I'm not just because of the company that owns it, but I just don't like the interface. It just doesn't, I don't find it very efficient. But Bitwarden is amazing. I love it. It's great. Um, you can host it yourself. Last I checked, I don't know if that's still the case, but yes. I have a paid account. It's open source. So I could, I have a YubiKey on there. So I have the two factor and uh, it, it's fast. It doesn't slow my browser like down like LastPass did back in the day. I noticed that my browser sessions were always slow. LastPass still does that to me. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, I can't stand using it. It's like when I was scrolling pages, like reading an article, I would notice that there'd be like a, um, it's almost like you're playing a game and like if, if your frames per second cut out and you see kind of like tearing, you see tearing in your browser just as you're scrolling down because the CPU would spike to 100% just to scroll one you know page with just text in it. And I, after months, found out his last pass. This is years ago, so I'm sad to find out it's still there's, the case. There's still some issues with it. Um, um, I'm looking at Bitwarden uh, now that it's passed audit because we use it yeah. commercially for our business. So it, switching tooling is something I'm careful about because I trust mm-hmm. the security of LastPass. But now that Bitwarden's passed the security audit, it looks interesting. Yeah, but, and it's, it doesn't slow my browser down. It's fast. It has a good interface. So I definitely recommend it. Mm-hmm. Um, not that's all we have for listener feedback, but I'll actually comment on something because I thought this was kind of a cool number. Uh, seven eight nine five zero five. That's the total number of downloads we have according to uh, Blurberry. They sent us our stats to the uh, show. Was that so, last week or this uh, month? Just it's a cumulative. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we're we're getting close to the million downloads. So thank you to all of our listeners for that. So. Well, thank you very much. Thank yeah. you. I thought that was cool. And when we cross that million download number, that's going to be kind of cool. And I should mention that in the YouTube channel a few times. If yeah. you can knock yeah. that up a little bit. <laughs> That's right. And if you have any listener feedback that you'd like to send to us, you can send it to show at smlr.us. Yes. 
Um, and we're also, uh, we I, I post the show in the Lawrence Systems forums. I have a section for it. Uh, so some of you, we, we don't have as many feedbacks read, but mostly because people are going, hey, Tom, where's the, when's the next show coming out? So we post it there, so you're more than uh, welcome to post there as well of some of the feedback. Because dealing with the uh, WordPress comments is mostly spam, as we learned. So I'm just trying to get it somewhere where it's easier to deal with. <laughs> for those of you who just want to post anonymously. All right, moving on to Distro Fever. New distros. Now, it doesn't make the list ever, because I don't know if they're even submitted to Distro Fever, but I will bring up real quick that I'm a big fan of XCPNG, and uh, they just released their latest version, which includes more file system support. They finally got EXT4 support for local storage, which sounds archaic, but um, they're, they're doing a lot of enhancements uh, with that. And if you're not familiar with XCPNG, it's not really a distro, it's a open source like Proxmox is. It's an open source uh, virtualization platform. Yeah, but Proxmox is in the distro watch when it they is. have releases. So maybe I'll ask Oliver why he doesn't have their submitted in there. But we do have some firewall releases. <laughs> OpenSense, which I've never used, but it's a fork of PFSense. They have a new release that's in there. What do they um, add to it? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I'm just... <laughs> no, you go, go ahead. ahead. I'm trying to... Oh, while you do that, I'll just mention quickly uh, System Rescue CD. I had a... Actually, this is a major release of at 6.0.0, but um, I was taking a look at Fun2. It wasn't, it wasn't too fun, but um, one, of the, um, one of the aspects of Fun2 is um, getting it installed, and you, um, you need to use a, a some Linux Live CD, and their recommendation was System Rescue, so I did. <clears throat> And yeah, I was able to. I mean, that's a ve that's a down to the basics install where it's no click 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 through like an Ubuntu style install. Mm. You got to do a lot of a lot of different things. Um, and um, I did I did end up getting it installed. I had a little problem with the boot, but System Rescue CD was um, was their recommendation to get that started. So I see that wow, they've got a new one. Yeah. Yeah, I was just double checking with the OpenSense because so many people ask me about it because I use so much PFSense. It, it, they're actually highlighting one of the things that I think is a little bit of a problem I have with OpenSense is they have so many releases compared to that. And from a stability standpoint of running firewalls, I don't want to update them all the time unless there's a reason to update them all the time. <laughs> you do like um, an LTS release or something that's just mostly about security updates or something like that. Yeah, there's been the argument um, that because the, they have 2FA in there, and someone wrote, and there's a, there's a hacky way to make it work in PFSense so you can have two-factor authentication. It does work out of the box in OpenSense, but it's also one of those, the, the answer to PFSense is lock down your management interface. You should have it very restricted anyways, not open to the public web and things like that. So I see the argument. I do like, you know, two-factor everywhere, but at some point having a separate two-factor just for your firewall, uh, do you really need it? So. I, I saw a new release of MX Linux 18.1, uh, which actually just the, the, that actually broke as I was uh, parking the car and checking the news right before I came <laughs> in. And um, it's actually one of my favorite distributions, highly recommended. Uh, I use it as I have actually, actually I've been using it in VM as a remote desktop that I can connect to via oh. X2Go, which is uh, X2Go is a um, kind of like remote desktop, but it's uh, for Linux. And MX Linux is based on Debian uh, Stretch currently, and I reviewed it on my channel and found it to be very awesome because Debian Stable, although I think Debian Stable is great, it's not, in my opinion, a good desktop release. Yes, intermediate, 
and advanced users can certainly make Debian stable work, and many do. But for the average person, Debian stable is usually missing this or missing that. So what MX Linux does is that they add on additional components on top of it. So you get XFCE as the desktop, but then they get the kernel updated to a very recent kernel. And you get the ver a very recent Firefox. They basically just get all the other software components updated, and they give you a lot of tweaks and customization that probably more than any distro I've seen in a very long time, to the point where they include a hack in Firefox to make the dark theme not obscure the text, which is a bug that Mozilla cannot seem to fix. And add-ons literally exist for that reason, to fix this problem in Firefox. And MX Linux actually has a checkbox in their control center. We could check the box saying, fix Firefox dark theme issue. And you check that box, restart your browser. They just think of everything. And that's I think their attention to detail in the amount of control they give you is really good. So 18.1 doesn't really offer much other than for me to have another excuse to talk about it, but it basically is just a standard uh, ISO refresh where they just wanted to have something out there with the more recent updates. But if you already have it installed, then you don't need to reinstall it, but highly recommend it. Yeah, you know, that uh, distro has some, uh, it's some of its roots, too, in Mepis <coughs> Linux, which mm -hmm. um, was my first uh, distribution where I, I got wireless working. Hmm. So I'll never forget that. Is it Mepis or Mepis? I Mepis. I, okay. I always call well, you're it the, You're the Debian guy. Remember that? Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. also called <laughs> a Debian. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, going with, uh, I'm going with Mepis. That's, yeah. And Anti-X is uh, yeah. also oh, yeah. part of yep. it as well. So it's like a joint venture yeah. between the two. So it, it looks like a pretty decent distribution. I've, I've enjoyed it to quite a bit. So uh, I, have, I have a review on my channel as well. Anybody oh, wants to, to well, see that. I won't that. have to review it. I'll just listen um, to you. Actually, I'd probably be very, more interested in hearing your take on it, uh, especially if you're trying it fresh. So. Oh, yeah. And then there's Refracta, which I first saw that, I thought, hey, that's Ann Romney's dressage horse. Oh. You remember that a couple years ago <laughs> where uh, I... We we said that, or I was talking about that with uh, I think it was this distro. Okay, I couldn't stop laughing. It was yes. horrible. <laughs> I think we had to stop recording because I kept laughing. But uh, no, her uh, it's Rafalka is what her dressage, okay. her dressage horse's name. But yeah, Refract is <laughs> out there. I mean, and that's the uh, you know, it's one of those system D free uh, distros. You know, those guys that uh, um, don't like system D. Learning what words mean in other languages has been interesting to me too. I've had, I've had some comments because apparently some of the words used in Linux mean slang words in other languages. That was a discussion I had with some people that oh. from other countries. That was fun. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, hmm. apparently they they blush a little when they talk about their uh, familiar with Zabbix. And if you don't know what Zabbix means in our language, that's way off topic for this show. <laughs> well, no, you realize that we'll do it after the show. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people are already out there looking. They're Googling it, and yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Tom. All right. <laughs> I was excited to see Alpine Linux uh, 3.9. Now, I don't run Alpine Linux on a desktop or but even you, a VM. But you like to ski? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I use it for containers mm. um, because the base container image is about 111 megs compared to something like Debian or CentOS or Fedora, which is going to be pushing like seven, 800 megs. Um, so just getting your software into this little container and making it available to people, um, such a smaller download, and that's always really nice. Well, that's a good point. Good point, Phil. 
How do you? I'm assuming you can just install like Nginx or Apache or whatever you need on it. Yes, you can. Um, instead of using uh, the glibc, they use their own C library called Muscle, and mm-hmm. they've got their own uh, package manager, oh, confusingly okay. called APK. And then when you try to search for that, you get a whole bunch of Android stuff. But hmm. what what would the development world be if we didn't name things the same? Exactly. All right. And there's Midnight BSD. I'll just make the little B- my BSD plug. I think that guy, I used to be in Ann Arbor. I don't know if he still is or not, but uh, he's Ann Arbor-based. Lucas Holt. That's All right. Me. Moving on to tech news. So uh, who wants to start with this? You want to don't, jump in? Don't everybody get in line first. No, <laughs> I will go ahead and may as well. I have a few. Um, so one article that came up in my news feed was the with the headline "Rest in Peace, Do Not Track the Privacy Standard Everyone Ignored." <laughs> yeah, pretty it, much. <laughs> it's one of those things that you know it, it's sad, but I think everybody kind of saw it coming. It's like it's a good noble thing to have a standard to tell websites. I prefer not to be tracked. To get them to oblige that request is another effort altogether. And it, it kind of, the article reads pretty much exactly the way you'd think that this standard was presented and, you know, websites are ignoring it. So what's, what they're actually saying in the article, and it'll be linked in the show notes, is they're quoting DuckDuckGo as having noticed that Apple is removing the uh, do not track preference from Safari which doesn't really affect us much because uh, we're not using Safari here. But uh, if Safari does it, I'm assuming other browsers will as well. But then they're also quoting another article claiming that development on the standard quietly ended as of Jan- January 17th. So it kind of looks like this this thing um, kind of isn't, I mean, didn't take off and clearly won't. So I guess it's not really a a, a priority anymore so well maybe it's unfortunate maybe, you know um i was thinking about that jay and maybe what they should do is uh <clears throat> if, if people are not or entities are not going to adhere to that when a browser sends that little notification um, maybe what the browser ought to just do instead is just allow the user to see what sites <clears throat> excuse me have uh, are tracking them right <clears throat> there, there's and maybe it's there's some overlap with cookies you know where you can go into the security area of a browser and the configuration and see uh, what cookies are stored. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe maybe just being able to go in there and see what sites are tracking you. It's not even just that, though, because there's also, I forgot what they call it, it's something like a fingerprint where they can okay. know it's you based on a combination of several factors, such as your operator. Well, <laughs> there is that, but if you add it up together, because everyone, I mean, most people on Linux are probably using Firefox cause if they're not changing their default mm-hmm. browsers since most browsers, sure. most distros ship with that. But you're on Linux... Now, some other factors could be your browser, so Firefox. What add-ons do you have installed? How much RAM do you have? What kind of CPU do you have? All these different characteristics might be more they specific can also get to you. Version? Yes. Yeah. Yep. You yep. can see your screen size as well. Yep. Yep. And all these things kind of seem innocent, right? Who cares what resolution I have or what kernel I'm running? And but, your battery level. Right. And when you combine all these things that kind of does make it specific to you because what if you think of it, 
who else has that exact combination of all these different factors? And the article is even saying that having do not track enabled could even be just one more factor that they can use to say, hey, it's you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Mary on the site again. So we need to sell her uh, some BSD t-shirts or something. So it's the internet equivalent of the do not call list. That's how I look at it. No, exactly. one, no one listens to yeah, it. No one the spam callers it. are still calling. Yeah. They are. And it, it's sad. I, I mean, it is what it is. But it came in my news feed, and you know, it's sad to see it go. I'm not sure exactly when it's going to be all the way out of our browsers, if it does or if it gets revived or leads to some other solution down the road, but it's hard to say. Hmm. Well, maybe maybe you can just have a virtual machine with five, uh, you know, virtual boxes, five or six different machines in there, and you use different ones. I thought about, and I've, do, I've done this before, and it didn't work out very well, but I might revisit this just for fun, not because I want to, I need to, but I was running my browsers in Docker. Because I, you know, segregating mm-hmm. it from the system. Yeah. It, it was kind of a manual process. I did get it working, but it just wasn't very stable when it comes to audio. So if I'm watching or listening to music on YouTube or watching a video, mm-hmm. uh, Pulse Audio, having that interface with your actual sound card through Docker, I got it working, but it was just kind of clunky and just kind of annoying. Um, but it was fun to actually have a completely segregated browser that. You know, it's completely separate from my system. Yeah, it's kind of like a jail. Yeah. Jess Frizzell, uh, she used to work at Docker. I forget uh, where she works now. I think Microsoft. She had a fantastic article about trying to run every part of her system in a container. Um, I'll send you that after the show. Yeah, we'll I'd like to check notes. that out. Because um, that goes in line with my experimentation of segregating user space apps. I mean, right mm-hmm. now I'm using AppImage, and there's not really any clear separation or sandboxing there, but taking it to the next level, yeah. That'd be yeah. fun. Now, for people who have never used Docker, um, I'm asking for a friend. Um, <laughs> the um, Setting that up is similar to setting up any kind of virtualization environment, or is it just simply uh, placing an application or a set of utilities it's, in it, and it just runs inside It's a there? different mindset. So okay. you think of a virtual machine like a family member. You know, you create it. You want to keep it alive, keep it healthy. It's stateful. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when you shut it down and then you turn it back on, you have the same state. So... If you install an application, shut it down, you turn it back on, you have that same application. Docker containers are more along the lines of... Um, Cousins? No. Well, they you create an instance of a container, and mm-hmm. when you delete it, all the data is gone. Mm. So that's the was the hardest part for me to get used to. Now, there's the ways around that is you can recreate the image. So let's say you install an application. If you didn't know any better, you, you close the container, you, you create a new one, because essentially you have an image and you're creating mm-hmm. a container. That container doesn't have that application installed because you didn't create a new image. So every container is an instance of an image. Okay. So when you launch a new container, it's a new entity altogether. So if you want something to retain, you can recreate the image with that included. Or you can have it mount a directory or some kind of area of your file system to save stateful data too. Okay. So in the case of browsers... Obviously, you, you probably want your preferences there. You probably don't want to set it, sign into sync every time if you even do that kind of thing. You probably don't want to install your extensions every single time. So then what I did is I gave it a directory in my home directory and in the container said, this belongs to you. So even though it's creating a new instance every single time, it's using the same data directory. doesn't matter. It's got the same data. So that was the interesting part for me to get over that. Now, Another solution is LexD containers, or actually LexC containers, which are the VM approach to containers. 
they are stateful. You turn, they, they basically retain their state, but they're containers. So you create one, you shut it down, it's got the same state the next time you turn it on, like mm, a VM would, okay. but it doesn't take the footprint of a VM. So I would actually argue that that's probably a better use case for what I'm doing, but uh, that that's just in case anyone mm-hmm. listening didn't know you know, the, the very basics of the concept, their difference between VMs, well, that's okay. what it is. Great. Um, and moving on from there, just a couple of quick articles that I found. I found an article on uh, Pharonix talking about more GNOME performance optimizations being tackled thanks to Canonical. And I, I wanted to illustrate this because it's an interesting shift with Canonical because in the past a lot of people... Um, criticize them for not going upstream with the things that they're using. Like they, they take the, the thing and then they use it, sell it, but they're not getting back. It's kind of not that way anymore because with this article is just one of many um, examples of this. They are going upstream with things. They are helping the GNOME project. And um, I mean, it, it remains to be seen what all is accepted upstream just because a company submits something upstream doesn't always mean that it's going to be accepted. But more often than not, it seems to be. And some of the work that they're doing currently that I think will impact GNOME users, um, Clutter, which I believe is, that's their uh, window manager. No, Mutter's their window manager. Um, but basically, there's work for delivering events sooner. Uh, so they're kind of working on some timing and trying to lower some latency they're trying to, with Mutter, which, yeah, that's their window manager. They're trying to lower the CPU and GPU usage on mouse movements, which doesn't sound like much, but every little benefit they give us makes it better overall. And uh, they're doing some work with the native renderer and refresh rates. Um, I mean, the, the list goes on, but I think it's interesting to see just how the GNOME project is benefiting from the fact that Canonical is using GNOME as their main default desktop now. So... I think it's great to see that uh, upstream work, and it gives a good example that if someone fixes a problem, submit it upstream so everybody can uh, benefit from yeah, it. Yeah, great so, point. Yep. And um, a couple more. So speaking of Ubuntu, they are, I don't know if they're going to decide on this all the, all the way, but they're currently looking into possibly making ZFS on the desktop an option when you install Ubuntu. That's an option on the server currently, but... Last time I checked, and I'm pretty sure that's the case, it's not offered on the desktop uh, release. So they're looking into the possibility of maybe doing that with the next Ubuntu. That's interesting, seeing as uh, there's potential problems between the GPL and ZFS. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, this is not any more, not exactly due to Sun, because Oracle bought them. It's really up to Oracle now how they want to play this game. Right. <laughs> I find that interesting that there hasn't been any lawsuits or any legal threats that I'm aware of on account of this. And it, they'll be coming, yes. probably. Yeah, I mean, what's been like, uh, was it, wasn't it 1604, if I remember correctly? I think, I think it was 1604 was the first one to do this. And it's been quite some time. It's been over two years. And it, it is kind of a wait and see to see if there's going to be a license conflict and a, and a big issue with it. So I think it, I think it illustrates the... <laughs> The actual problem that I see here, other than the licensing, is the fact that ZFS is necessary in the first place because Linux doesn't really have a file system that's stable and trustworthy that can offer the feature set that ZFS offers. It just doesn't exist. Now, ButterFS, you could argue, has the feature set, but it doesn't really have the tried-and-true use case 
that uh, ZFS has. It right. just hasn't been around as long. It has a bad history of uh, you know messing up people's raids, chewing up data, all kinds of uh, bugs. And that's kind of tarnished its reputation. So it's interesting to me that rather than put all the resources behind making ButterFS more stable and everything, <laughs> they're putting all the resources into adopting this other platform's file system instead, which I get it. It, it exists already. Why reinvent the wheel if it already exists? But at the same time, we don't really have a homegrown ZFS competitor that can stand up to ZFS right now. That's I'm ZFS on FreeBSD? You bet. Okay, you, had <laughs> yeah, you had to just, just wedge that area in there, yeah. No, you're mm-hmm. right, 100%. I'm pretty excited for bcachefs. Uh, it's touted as the copy-on-write file system for Linux that won't eat your data. Ooh. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's always good when uh, my data isn't eaten. Yes. Um, That's right. Now, I have two articles regarding Firefox. One good and one a good thing and one a kind of like a tweak <laughs> about a bad thing, or at least what I consider a bad thing. So I'll start with the good first. <clears throat> and this is something I think is pretty awesome because it drives me crazy whenever I'm reading an article and all of a sudden, you know, I have my speakers up because maybe I was blaring some heavy metal or something and I turn off my speakers and now it's time to listen, you know, read an article. And all of a sudden an ad comes in and startles me and then I hear somebody talking and I'm trying to find which tab has the audio. I think that's a situation <laughs> that not very many people probably enjoy finding themselves in. And what Firefox is going to be doing, I believe in the next version, yep, 66, they are going to take a harder stance on blocking the auto-playing ads that come up with audio and video. So, Thankfully. Yeah, I kind of felt like this is something I thought was the case a long time ago, but just didn't seem to go anywhere because I know all the browsers were talking about this, but it just didn't seem to happen and it is happening in Firefox 66. Now, there is a an about config tweak in Firefox, and there has been for quite some time. You can go in there and manually tweak that in these videos and audio. They cannot autoplay. But I always forget when I reload my system to you know set that because it's not something Ansible, my configuration management utility, can hook into. At least I just haven't bothered to do it yet. So I forget to set this flag. Now, all of a sudden, I have ad, you know, ad audio playing. But... Thankfully, they're taking care of that, and I think that's awesome. So you'll be able to uh, manage this on a site-by-site basis. You'll have a way to do it in the in the GUI, so you won't have to do about config. You'll actually have a um, graphical way of setting this. So if you do have a site where you know you, you actually do want it to play automatically, then you can you know certainly allow that site. But by default, all the sites that you go to will not allow that by default. So that's awesome. And I also have a link. Uh, from HowToGeek on how to disable a feature in Firefox 65 that I personally don't like. And that feature is the one where Firefox will start recommending extensions that match the site you're on. So uh, some random examples. I don't know who what sites are doing this or what sites are not. So these are made-up examples. But the you know, for example, you could be on YouTube. You might say, hey, you should install the YouTube plugin. Then you go to Facebook. Oh, install the Facebook plugin. Then you go to buy something. You should install the extension for Amazon. And then basically it'll prompt the user for this. And the benefit is a couple benefits here. So first of all, they're not just going to recommend random extensions. I think there is a vetting process here. So um, they're, they're not just going to start recommending extensions that they haven't checked out. And from what I understand, they're also not getting a monetary benefit from this either, which makes me wonder why they're even doing it in the first place. But according to Mozilla, they're not gaining financially for doing this. 
And my problem with this is it kind of seems like the toolbar problem of the early 2000s and late 90s where, you know, you, you fix a family member's computer, you bring up their browser, and half the browser <laughs> is all toolbars. Tool and yes. now, now extension, they're going to be extensions all over the place. And, you know, that's probably eating RAM and CPU. And the potential problem that I see is that what could happen is what if an extension gets bought by another company or they get an update that starts tracking people or starts introducing things into people's computers that they didn't ask for. That's a lot of work for Mozilla to really keep track of. And they have previously recommended an extension that tracks browsing data. So even Mozilla themselves have already uh, tripped up on this and had a um, knock on their reputation for doing this. And now they want to do this for everyone. But this article tells you a simple way of disabling this. So if you manage you know family members computers and you're concerned that they'll say yes to every extension that pops up maybe you might want to toggle this for them or for yourself so i'll have that in the show notes as well and then finally i found a review of a zareason computer uh, that they don't seem to hit the news very often we actually have a zareason laptop here we have in the one studio. in the room i'm looking right at it uh and you know, it, we hear about System76 all the time because they take up most of the news. Zareason is an, a company that does pretty much the same thing. They make uh, Linux-compatible computers. One of the things I like about Zareason is you get a wider variety of distributions you can choose with them. You don't have to be limited to just Ubuntu or whatever. Uh, you get whatever one you want. There's big selection. And they the article is that they announced the GamerBox 9400. So... Right after I buy my ATI card and I get it all set up, now here's a reason with an all-in-one <laughs> system that they're shipping. And at first I thought maybe this is going to be like their SteamOS box, which would be awesome. But it looks to me, I don't really have anything in the picture to compare it. It's not the uh, picture of the desktop isn't sitting by anything I can compare the size to. But it looks like it's actually a fairly big machine. So it looks like it would be a, a fun one to review if they want to send us one. But overall, I think it's great that they're targeting the Linux gaming community because with Proton on Steam, it's working so well. We can play games that we never thought we would before. Games that are exclusive to Windows now work almost like they're uh, native. And um, it's also uh, the case, I mean, this, this got an NVIDIA video card, but now NVIDIA is going to be enabling FreeSync. So even if you have an AMD uh, FreeSync monitor, that should work. So the reason is offering that. Uh, which good for them. So I'd like to see System76 have some competition because competition is, is healthy. So that was pretty cool. And that's all I have. All right. Let me go ahead and jump in here. So Unify, did they have a security issue? This was kind of annoying to me um, that people were calling it a security problem. And I bring this up because Unify is very, very popular. <laughs> They've kind of uh, become a massive company in the wireless market. And their stock just jumped a couple of points yesterday. It did, quite a bit. So the stock jump is really Saturday? To... <clears throat> Friday. 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 Mary knows the markets. <laughs> and what day it is. <laughs> and what day it is, yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, 
anyways, they're, they're, they're a pretty successful company, and uh, we have a lot of them deployed, and I've done a lot of videos on them. Matter of fact, if you search Unify, a lot of my YouTube channel comes up about them, so a lot of people were asking me about this. Oh, my gosh, is, do I have to worry about this? I'm like, one, zero of my clients are affected by this, not because I didn't use the particular product, but because I'm not an idiot. Um, this is putting the management interface on public routable IPs without properly securing it. That's essentially what the oh. cause of this is. It's all for transparency. Come on. Yeah, Come absolutely. On. Put your management interface on publicly routed IPs and then leave the default password and then leave all the services on without a firewall. What's the worst um, that could happen? What's the worst could happen? Um, <laughs> well, there's about 400,000 of these floating out there, and someone did take the time to rename them, help me, I've been hacked, which amused me to no end. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> and, but the, the less amusing part is that they're still named that. So <laughs> and they will be named that 10 years from now. And they will be named that 10 years from now, exactly. So um, it's not exactly a security flaw. Uh, it's one of those compromises that was made. So there, if you didn't know, the super secret is UBNT, UBNT is the default username and password, which is on a internal interface. And that reminds you, the instant you log in, you really should change it. Uh, and people promptly change it to UBNT, UBNT. <laughs> and it still keeps bugging you and lets you know, but it still lets you save it as the password. Um, so that's part of the problem there. The second problem is it's a discovery tool to make it easier to find on your network because it's supposed to be internal. And people are using these on the WISP side for wireless internet search writing. So they have public IPs on management interfaces, and they didn't take the time to secure them. Uh, that's just life. So in a more uplifting news, though, a Linux distribution for phones and other mobile devices. I thought this was really cool. It's called Post Ubuntu Touch. Ubuntu no. Touch. Yeah, well, wah, wah. Um, that's not getting funded no more. But uh, I know Ubuntu Touch kind of exists in some quasi-state. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it's where it is at. Uh, UB ports. Okay. They're trying to keep it alive as a community effort. Um, there is Post Market OS. It's in alpha, and uh, they show it working on a Nokia N9 100 and a Google Nexus 5. They have a big list of devices, but they do show it runs. It runs Linux on your phone. Uh, this is pretty exciting, especially for people who want to be security-minded because the monolithic things that are going on and all the you know uh, controversial things between Apple and Google and the spying and the um, everything else going on, it this is kind of a nice alternative to if this actually comes out um, and, and works as good as we all hope it does. But I would it, like I would like that very much. There's a lot of people on there, you know, that are interested in this. I wonder how that stacks up to uh, purism. Uh, good question. OS. Good question. Yeah, that's interesting. It's going to be interesting. It's in alpha right now, so I don't know how much of it you can really download. But I, there's there's development on that front. There's a market demand for it, so um, it's slowly working its way towards us, which is kind of exciting. I'd love to check one of those out one day. I would just hope that one of them is comparable to you know the comp competition. Be yeah, great to have it. And if you didn't hear about this, Pine Phone Linux smartphone priced at $149 to arrive this year. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Pine projects, they make a laptop. I think they make a $99. Um, they make a, a 90 ish dollar tablet, and then there's um, one for about $200 uh, that has way better specs. Yep. Uh, with an IPS screen, 14 inch, and they're using the Rock system on a chip, so it's an ARM-based laptop uh, running Linux. And they've worked with some uh, more than one distribution. Uh, we, thank you, Pine, for not trying to just come up with your own distro and actually working with the other companies for a properly uh, compiled ARM system for it. Yeah, where's hmm. that uh, based out of? Pine uh, where is Pine? I'm not sure where they're. Curious. That part, I'm not sure about. Okay. 
okay, sorry. No, no, no. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I was mm -hmm. just curious. That's really exciting to see all this development about, you know, surrounding mobile computing with, with Linux. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm just excited to see it, and um, I'm going to continue to follow it because I'm really hoping that it... In building ARM-based systems, because uh, we've seen people kind of build homemade laptops out of Raspberry Pis, it's it's proven very viable. It's mm -hmm. proven uh, practical for people who just have really basic use cases. And uh, I actually like this idea of a sub $200 laptop or even a, a basic system, because sometimes I just need to go there. I only need a few Linux tools to do network testing. And it's kind of nice to have something that would be really thin and light and yep. uh, easy just to do that or leave it somewhere because I want to do a security scan somewhere and just audit some network traffic. Um, inexpensive device. I've used Raspberry Pis for oh, this yeah. in the past. so I've done the same. I've used a Raspberry Pi 2 near my servers um, with Ubuntu Mate's Raspberry Pi release on there. And it was just an easy way to get a web console to the servers and SSH in. Uh, you wouldn't even know it's running on a Raspberry Pi for simple tasks like that. Yeah. So there's some things that are just, it sounds like a good job for. It comes from China. Oh, well, I think it all does. <laughs> we love our friends in China. At we least it's open source. Don't Actually, like some of their distance. So we can audit our friends Actually, in China. Actually, um, <laughs> you guys ever gone to AliExpress? I have yeah. not. Oh, my gosh. I'm addicted to it. It, it is. Oh, we, we, we order stuff from there. Matter of fact, I was just what looking. What is that again? It's um, AliExpress.com. Mm -hmm. It's the uh, retail site of Alibaba. Uh -huh. Alibaba is the big business-to-business -business, uh, um, site in China. It's oh. kind of like uh, Chinese Amazon. Well, no. Well, China, and if you're not familiar with Alibaba, in China, Alibaba is what happens if you put Google... Apple and Amazon is one company. Mm -hmm. That's Alibaba. It's all of them. It's it's their search engine. It's their uh, marketplace. It's where they commerce, buy things. It's also e their eBay. Yeah. It's their e-commerce mm -hmm. system. So it's where auctions happen. Everything but, happens. You in, know, minimum five thousand units. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's that kind of thing. Um, we've mm -hmm. actually we've ordered a handful of things for like uh, zip ties because we do mm -hmm. infrastructure wiring. You can get it really cheap there. So yeah, Alibaba yeah. is a good place for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, LibreOffice. 6.2 with notebook bar, which I haven't tried this. Have you I tried? Did. Do you like it? Yeah. Um, I actually started. I started trying it about a year and a half ago, and it, and it was it was a little rough around the edges. I went back to the normal uh, normal way, but I did take a look at it uh, recently, and it, it's done a lot of improvement. There are um, icons for I think all of the tasks that are in the bar. That was one of the problems. You'd have like a name. Some had, some had, some didn't. So there was mm -hmm. this kind of uh, kludgy look to it. But they've uh, really cleaned that up uh, quite nicely. So that's, uh, that's looking pretty good. I'm disappointed that I can't install it in my uh, KDE Neon system because they're still on 6.0. All you got to do is just download the app image. App image. And I'll send it to, I can send it yep. to you after the show and get you running on it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. all right. All right. Good. Um, a few other things they added, and Phil might like this, in Calc, they added regex. So you can do regular expression matching in Calc, so you can do spreadsheets with regex. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Pivot yeah. tables eat your heart out. Yeah. That's actually a feature that uh, the hardcore programmers and stuff are going, ooh, this added some real functionality to spreadsheets. So, um, For contracting work, I've been using the hledger uh, command line. Mm. And that's that's really nice. So I don't have to use uh, Google Sheets anymore. Nice. Yeah, these are definitely some cool things. Uh, yeah, and they cleaned up. Uh, they've they've uh, tried to get more standardized on their context menus too between the uh, applications. Yeah. So that if it's in one spot in one, you'll find it pretty much in the same spot. I mean, it kind of was that way, but I think they've improved it. Yeah, that's, I think that's important is uh, design consistency because I want the help mm -hmm. menus and what all the menus just to have a really a f consistent feel across the platform. Um, 
you know, although I'm more adaptable with having worked in technology, but ultimately it's used by a lot of the end users. You don't get mass adaptation of a product unless it has like a design consistency and it's easy for people to use in the mass public. Uh, we may get excited about RagX, but I'm sure this, the, the people working in offices are going, RagX what? <laughs> so. there, is, there is one person somewhere that's doing a fist pump right now about that though mm -hmm. besides us I guarantee besides it. us yeah it's great for in Dan well it's actually going to be a bunch of Germans because uh, Germans been Germany's been really leading it and uh, moving towards this and saying you know we're kind of done with this Microsoft office thing these licenses uh, Germany's been moving to LibreOffice so that's been we covered that a couple times in a show so yeah uh, you know the other thing too with Microsoft coming out with um, office 2019 and um, Office 365, what they really uh, don't want you to do is they don't want you to buy uh, no. the single-unit the single unit purchase version. They want that subscription because yes. that kind of ropes you in. So what I really see happening is um, LibreOffice continues to evolve. I'm expecting that it's going to get an even wider uh, range of play with uh, various entities and organizations, well, in addition to the users who um, like it. Quite a bit. I think the big thing is, for most people, Microsoft Office compatibility. 6.2 is supposed to really increase the compatibility. And I can't personally mm -hmm. attest to that because I don't have a test case for it. But at my company, that's you know we don't use Microsoft Office anymore. And that's the biggest mm -hmm. complaint is people will claim it doesn't work well with that. And that's a big thing. They don't want their documents they've already written to there, there are definitely those. some issues with that. Uh, we've had clients that tried to move, but uh, in the automotive world, you cannot move away from it because the bid sheets sent by the automotive suppliers have special macros for calculations, and they do not – some they have to be rewritten to work in LibreOffice. So I do understand there's some industries and verticals that are going to have a really hard time moving, but um, with Microsoft forcing everyone into a subscription, I think we're going to see some pushback for it. Oh, yeah, I bet. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, try. Oh, if anyone wants to spend a few minutes uh, doing this, try to find the purchase version of Office 19. You'll find you'll have to That's go through so a hard. lot of links. I have tried to find it myself. It's you got to do some work. digging. The, yes. Everything prompts up with a. Oh, if you try to purchase Microsoft Office, everything's subscription. Speaking of Microsoft, they're no longer off the chain. And if you don't know what that means, <laughs> there is a uh, project that they're. I, I just like the title. Um, but Microsoft is joining the Open Chain project, which is uh, hosted by the Linux Foundation. It's to make sure people are complying with licenses in a uniform way. Uh, so I'll leave a link to the article to go more in depth what that means. But basically, they're going to adhere to some standards on things. Um, and, you know, Microsoft's been going all in on open source uh, because they want you to host whatever magic open source project you have in the Azure system. Uh, so they're getting more and more compliant uh, with this, which is kind of interesting. Also, I didn't, not going to leave it in the show notes, but someone actually said Microsoft has actually defended a few open source projects recently, which was like a complete twist. What? Yeah, some well, company what? had some FUD going on about how open source is insecure, and then Microsoft says, no, it, it, it's fine, it's secure. <laughs> and everyone's like, remember when you guys were the FUD? <laughs> Wow. So, those are the days. Those are the days, man. We can't hate them as much anymore. Damn it. <laughs> well, who do we hate now? We got to hate some new. You can help. Well, you can hate Wells Fargo if you're a customer. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. That's apparently they were there. too big to fail over at their data center. <laughs> 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 so uh, I, it, this is not an official. This is a Reddit 
uh, discussion going on. So well, for those of you that don't know, Wells Fargo took a day off uh, and took a day off with your money. <laughs> and they should take a day off my mortgage too. That'd uh, be real nice. Everyone's nice. asking, whoever hacked them, <laughs> can you do Fannie Mae next or any of the other student loans? Like, you know, come on, guys. But it was only gone. It was down, I think it was like 12 hours total of down. Uh, but they even said it took a few days because some smaller of the subservices couldn't get started. So uh, people who on the... Um, request of anonymity, but they I left a link to the red discussion, which is all there, basically said what had happened internally was there was a, a problem with one of the generators that the contractor did, and so it went into failover mode and shut everything down. So uh, data centers, because fires are um, really scary, they, they really are extra cautious. A little bit of smoke turns into, uh, let's just shut everything down and figure out where that smoke came from. Uh, there's also another story on Reddit that's uh, about someone vaping in a data center, which caused a problem recently, oh too. Which, that's just dumb. <laughs> but but, but <laughs> so you can cause really bad issues with something really minor in a data center. So we shut them all down so we don't destroy this expensive of infrastructure. Well, it turns out, based on what I read on Reddit, and this is where you should always not have a backup plan, but walk through or table talk through your disaster recovery planning, because apparently when the main data center went down, they did not have a way to update the DNS, if I understood this, to point it at the other data centers that were up. And they have two other failover data centers. Yay for failover. Bad for being unable to fail over <laughs> to other data centers causing the major outage. So I can never express enough what our clients, you know, you, you put together an entire business continuity plan. You don't go, is that backed up? You you put it together, and if you haven't tested it, well, then it's just wishful thinking. So always test your backups, uh, test your backup plan, and test your business continuity plan uh, before you end up being too big to fail over. <laughs> and it gets scary when you're that size. I can't imagine trying to fail over some of these uh, systems that are done at the scale of wow. like a bank. You know, they're a Fortune 100 company, so to fail over a Fortune 100 company, is it do, how often do they do that testing? Not enough. The more that you do it, the less scary it becomes, yes. in my opinion. And Phil's absolutely right. It's, uh, it is scary, but every now and then, you know, if you have a weekend, uh, unplug something. See if see if you can recover from it the way you thought. Or just be like Tom and run beta software and have to recover things because, well, he was trying well, because something. because beta. It was beta. <laughs> My backups work, by the way. <laughs> Tom doesn't run on the bleeding edge. He's on the hemorrhaging edge. I, I, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I spent three hours last Saturday. People were like, oh, I thought you were going to produce a video Saturday. Well, I was. And then, and then. <laughs> we tested all Tom's backups because I – remember when I said that we were, there was a beta for that XCPNG? The beta was interesting. <laughs> it's in release now. It's fine. <laughs> but it's more fun. Yeah, and my backups work. <laughs> and my plan worked. It just it still takes time to push data back. Now, Google asked the Supreme Court to, for ruling for to overturn the disastrous uh, API copyright problem. For those of you not familiar with this, this was where um, Oracle, oh, our friends at Oracle, uh, or less friends at Oracle, they sued and kind of won and then lost, and then won, and then lost, and now they win again. This has been going on since 2014, this constant back-and-forth lawsuit of whether or not you can use the Application Programming Interface, or API, for Java. And uh, it's really interesting because normally an API is just how you interface with things, so people want to interface with your API. So Google used that API interface to build Android on, even though they didn't use Java in the background. So they're saying, no, no, you violated our rights by creating a common API that matches our API. So it's a very uh, – this case was first made famous because the judge took the time to learn Java to even hear it. He actually took Java courses before hearing the case, and hats wow. off to that judge. Wow. Like, so awesome. Yeah. that He put himself – I mean, I, granted, I imagine law school is hard, but 
Java programming? <laughs> what I wonder, I wonder what we thought about that compared to law school. Bar exam or Java certification? Which one did you go? Can you imagine a lawyer writing FizzBuzz? Yeah. <laughs> um, but this obviously, uh, this ruling, if you know, it's still in flux right now because it's still being contested. So it's not as it, it was ruled on, but it's going to be contested forever. And we're watching two juggernauts, two companies with billions of dollars and lots of happy lawyers on each side winning money. Um, but it does set a standard. Like if they actually could make this stick, uh, it could really break a lot of things in our world that we rely on because we generally expect APIs to talk to each other in a very open uh, format. So being able to copyright an API is obviously a really big headache. Then, this is a story we hear all the time. So, another data leak through cloud misconfiguration horror story. Now, obviously, these don't really make news news, but this company, once again, published all their data, Elasticsearch, and they put all the fancy tools together to allow us to purge through data, and then accidentally made it public. And I kind of want to bring this up, because um, this came up at our DC313, and we've talked about this with a lot of us, because I have friends that are AWS security people, and they just run around... And it just happens too many and too many enterprises are like, yeah, we couldn't figure out how to make the permissions work right. So we just threw an asterisk on the bucket, which means we opened it to the world. Oh, no. And bucket IDs are kind of long and unique, So, that, but they're not passwords. They are long and unique. And once someone discovers it, uh, there's actually, if you look up, there's a group of people, they call themselves the bucketeers. <laughs> <laughs> you can guess what they spend their time doing. They look for open buckets and they're never disappointed. They, <laughs> It's... it's one of those problems that you really have to think about in your infrastructure, and you, I recommend you think about this when you're small because the problem scales as the companies get bigger. And that's some of the discussions I've had with my security friends is, yeah, I work for a company. They had me took over. The last guy left. He couldn't figure out permissions, and we found it. Basically, he gave 79 devs access to everything even though they don't need it, but they also just left the buckets wide open because it was easier for the devs to work from home without putting uh, specific security restrictions on it. So it's just one of those things I want people to always be thinking about uh, what least privilege, least privilege, least privilege. Just you can't think about that enough. Like only give people what they need access to and escalate it as they need it, not as you may think they need it. So uh, that's yeah. more of the story and more of a moral about that. But of course, it's just um, every every week I could published like three articles about these companies that have left their AWS because they put it in the cloud. They couldn't figure out why the boss can get to it. So someone just star, star, <laughs> just open it all up. Okay, the boss can read all the data. Oh, wait, everybody can now. So definitely something to think about there. Uh, next article I have, this is an interesting dive. Uh, so Cisco routers, wow. Um, they had a big, big security problem with them. This was open to the, on the public interfaces and it was around for about 18 months. Uh, there was a hole in them. Well, what became more interesting than the hole, at least to me, because the hole was like, oh, yeah, you could dump the entire Cisco uh, thing. And there were two threats. One dumped it. Uh, the other one had a, had a default username and password, so that got you into it. So you could dump the security information out, and then you could log back in and uh, change passwords and do whatever you want with these, including uh, it, all the IPsec keys because they're VPN, they're small business routers. And we know uh, small business routers basically are set it and forget it, right? You never have to update them. Some people were actually saved by not updating them because the earliest firmwares didn't have the flaw, later firmwares had the flaw, and now they have a flaw fix. So if you didn't update it from the day you installed these, you're good. But where things took a little twist, and this is where I'm looking at Cisco, not just on the security, this is a Cisco-branded product, their RV series. Um, they found out, when the two security researchers that independently found this bug, one of them had a big discrepancy for how many 
out there there were. One's like, oh, no, there's 400,000. No, there's 200,000. No, we have 400,000 unique IPs. And they're like, no, we have 200,000 MAC addresses. They're like, wait a minute here. They started looking. It turns out Cisco has something going on, that, that something bigger at play here. They have the same MAC address on the WAN interface of tons of these. So when they thought they were sorting by the unique MAC address that is assigned to every network card, they would get a unique number of systems. It turns out they don't. If you sort it by IPs, you have a better answer. So mm-hmm. Phil's making a face because he knows what kind of a routing problem this causes. And uh, there was some anecdotal uh, conversation on, that stemmed from this for people buying knockoff NIC cards and that were shipped to their company. And they didn't realize they couldn't figure out their own network issues that wouldn't work anymore because all the NIC cards had the same MAC address on them. Um, and this is wow. – I, I expect that from knockoff cheap products that you buy, same MAC address stamped out. I don't expect this from Cisco though. So some interesting insight, and I don't know how that plays out in the open world, like on a WAN side, connecting all these different devices. Um, but it dirt certainly is going to create some issues, especially if you had, for example, a business that bought two of them to split the business, one section and one section using two separate firewalls. They wouldn't work if the WAN both had the same address on there. So um, something – Cisco's maybe not that company that people think they are. I don't know. I always heard I've never got fired for buying Cisco. They're the best security company ever, but they're really – these are old devices. They're, I think there's been some questions for a while going on in that company. <laughs> yeah. And uh, related to this is NetSec Open. Help us revolutionize security product testing. So NetSec Open is a organization that's trying to come up with standards for this and um, auditing pro- auditing products. And they have some big names in here. We've got Cisco in there, Fortinet, Sophos, Palo Alto, SonicWall, Checkpoint, and you name it. Um, and what these are is we're trying to come up with a way to standardize these firewalls to determine whether or not they're secure, a standards for testing. All these companies want to submit to it. And I've This is um, kind of a great thing. So I've done a lot of firewall reviews and people always ask me to review more of them. I'm like, the problem is there's not a standard way I can test these. And one of the problems I've run into even trying to assess firewalls is these companies, even if they're using OpenVPN, sometimes they rename it and tweak it. So they make it that much harder to do. And the good news is open source firewalls, I, mean, I think we're going to keep seeing a bigger and bigger push for them because they're easier to audit, easier to figure out, and no, no mature open source firewall ever ever has a default username and password because someone would see it in the code and go, that's stupid. And we're looking at the big companies who have frequently, oh, yeah, we forgot. When Bob was here, he always liked to put Bob and Bob as the username and password so we could test. He was supposed to take that out. Problem is they didn't, and we've seen so many of these companies that are now in this NetSpec open list. They're also the same companies that didn't have proper code sanitation um, and stuff made it out to production. So I kind of welcome this. I would Hopefully this expands to things like IoT and things like that so we have some community standards like these are the guidelines you need to follow. Um, this is the case in some open source projects, but a bigger standard and people joining a consortium where you can trust it. It's a holy grail. Uh, maybe we'll get there, but at least it's a start. So uh, take a look at NetSec Open and some of the people in there and uh, what they're doing. And that's what I got for the news. Great. I've got about 20 items. Um, no, <laughs> I'm kidding. I have two quick items. Um, one of them was already covered by, no, three. One of them was already covered by you guys, so I won't talk about the upgrade, the uh, uh, LibreOffice uh, uh, update. Um, KDE released uh, their applications uh, 18.12.2 um, on February 7th, so mostly uh, um, little bug fixes, that kind of thing. So if you don't automatically update, you might want to uh, take a look at that. And also KDE Frameworks uh, 5.55.0 was uh, updated um, or released on uh, February 9th. Uh, they've got uh, over 70 add-on libraries to, uh, to 
Institute, which uh, provides a wide variety of commonly needed functionality and mature peer-reviewed and well-tested libraries with friendly license terms. So I love friendly license terms. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, so they've got that, uh, some changes to icons, all sorts of little uh, little tidbits in uh, that late, uh, latest release. So that's what I got. Cool. I haven't touched KDE in a little while, but I certainly, uh, I love KDE Lifestyle. Now? I'm still running Pop! OS. Oh, Pop! Yeah, I'm really happy with it still, but I do miss mm-hmm. KDE. Just visually, mm-hmm. it was very... Um, very configurable. Very advanced feeling. So <laughs> Bloated, I mean, some might say. <laughs> I use KDE straight from 2002 through 2011. So mm. a decent chunk of time there. And yeah. Even though I don't use it as my my go-to, I still have a lot of respect for it. They do mm-hmm. some pretty sweet, clever yes. things in their design that I wish others yeah. would do. Like, for example, being able to pause your your music or skip tracks on the lock screen. So you don't have to unlock your computer yeah. if you want to switch what you're playing. That's yeah. brilliant. Stuff like that. It There's is. so many things like it's that. It's the little things. I really like console as opposed to GNOME Terminal. Mm. Console oh, yeah. has so many different tunables that GNOME Terminal seems to be stripping out at every possible chance. Ah, yeah, mm-hmm. so that's a really good point because uh, a lot of us, if we're we need to pick a desktop that fits our mm-hmm. lifestyle, you know, like Phil, he's, he lives in the terminal. <laughs> I'm I'm a little different there, which is I'm, I know I'm probably in the minority. My favorite terminal is the one that has the fewest features possible. Like, I want nothing. No no mouse support. No menus. You want a prompt no, though, don't you? I want the prompt, <laughs> but actually I, I use Tmux to provide all the features of the terminal. So everything I do, I do in Tmux, but I know that's more complicated than the average person probably has uh, patience for. But when you get used to Tmux, then I just find you don't always need the features of the terminal. So I will use UR, URXVT, Unicode, as my terminal, which basically is just a terminal. It has pretty much nothing. So, But I agree with Phil, though. They it console is more featureful mm-hmm. than uh, GNOME Terminal for sure. It is a great terminal emulator, and I spent you know quite a long time using it. So awesome. Yeah, GNOME went through a period where they were taking things out of GNOME. The developers, it seemed like they were just well, they're so, only taking the things out that they said they would take out. Okay. Uh, so basically, they made GNOME made it very clear what their direction is, mm-hmm. and and I think what a lot of people just to keep it short should realize about GNOME is that they did what Windows did, or Microsoft did with Windows 8, where, where they, they thought like, oh, well, this uh, all these big icons and menus and the desktop's going away, the icons are going away, which obviously isn't the case. Even Mac OS just released a new version that even has a new feature for desktop icons. So clearly desktop icons are not going away. But GNOME already started down this path and of, you know, doing what they call a, you know, they're not doing the traditional desktop. The problem is now that GNOME went down this path, there's no going back. Now Mate is doing traditional desktop better than GNOME did. KDE is doing it better. Uh, Cinnamon is doing it better. Everybody who targets the traditional desktop, mm-hmm. they're doing it better. So there's no reason for GNOME to try to compete at that level anymore because I think they probably know they have no chance of competing there at all. So the only thing GNOME can do is just keep going the direction that they set for themselves and you know, good luck for them. I yeah, guess. I, I heard they're taking so many things out that they're gonna, now going to be called no. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. why you're here, Mary. <laughs> we needed yeah, that. That was, that was great. And, you know, I'm a GNOME user myself, but I definitely can understand that nobody likes their favorite features going away. That's just not something you yeah. want to open your desktop and find out. So I understand totally. But 
We can talk about desktops all day. Yes, we can. We can <laughs> argue about them. Yes. <laughs> well, as far as things uh, going away, it's soon going to be old, slow DNS is going away. Ooh. On February 1st, uh, 2019, um, the, world just, the world and the Internet just passed DNS Flag Day. And what is that? Well, uh, current DNS is unnecessarily slow and inefficient because of efforts to accommodate uh, new DNS systems um, that aren't compliant with DNS standards uh, set in place 20 years ago in 1999. So on Flag Day, administrators across the globe enabled support for eDNS, and eDNS stands for Extension Mechanisms for DNS, and what that is is a specification for um, different parameters that you can throw into DNS. Um, it's going to allow us to uh, move forward uh, technologically and not have to rely on uh, just slowness, that is. Um, so what did you have to do as an internet user? Nothing. All the administrators and programmers did the heavy lifting. That is good. And then um, building upon uh, DNS at FOSDEM, 2019, that's the Free and Open Source Software Developers European meeting, there was tons and tons of panels and discussions about DNS, um, specifically DNS over HTTPS, DNS over TLS, DNS over the cloud. And all of these have uh, fancy acronyms. Um, so, uh, DOH, <laughs> DOT, uh, DOC. Let's just keep adding to the pile. Oh, we love acronyms. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, what all of that boils down to is how do we protect uh, uh, how do we protect users and their privacy um, when making DNS communications? Um, so that is that was a fantastic write-up by um, Power DNS, and then uh, HTTP three. Um, there is a new book and the quick protocol um, called HTTP3, and the book is from Daniel Stenberg. Uh, he, he most famously created CURL. Um, it's the most popular HTTP library. Um, it's on every system. It's on your phone. Uh, you'll see it licensed in your car, probably on your microwave too. Yeah. <laughs> And so he's got uh, a book called HTTP3 Explained, and that's available. Very cool. And uh, the quick protocol is uh, really interesting. It's helping speed up the Internet. And I, as I mentioned, I did a video kind of explaining on it. You can do some reading on it. It's, it's also a love-hate thing with Google. So for those of you, the history of quick is a little bit – I'll sidestep a little bit. But um, Google decided to make it a standard without the – consultation of the internet. They did it by incorporating it into their back end. It's an open standard, but they just kind of said, we're using it. And then the internet slowly goes, well, I guess it's faster and we're going to adopt it. So apparently if I understood some of the history, they suggested it. Everyone says, nah. And then Google says, well, we're just going to do it anyways. Um, so it's been kind of interesting history. The ratified version of Quick is uh, very standardized and it's been accepted and everyone's using it. And I am happy that Google did it as an open standard. But it also is a little scary that Google's big enough that they can just go, we're using a protocol and it's going to become the standard. <laughs> but it is secure, it is faster, and it is good. 
So everything else I like about it. Also, TLS 1.3, I like that it has the perfect forward secrecy in it. That is a big security enhancement and a big security nightmare. Cisco has a write-up of why they don't like it, because you can't spy on the users uh, very well with it. So <laughs> the internet's getting more secure and uh, harder to deal with from a management standpoint. So anyways, I think we've reached the end of the show. Anyone else? For the good of the order, <laughs> you've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review, episode 300 with our special guest, Mary. Linux is obsolete. This is Tom Lawrence. Mary Tomich. Phil Parada. Jay LaCroix. And we'll hear from you next time. You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows, go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at smlr.us or give us a call at 734-258-7009. I'm John Miller. If you don't like it, you can bite my 8-bit metal ass. That's bite with a Y. <laughs>